are entering the Freedom Hut. The hysteria around Russia collusion continues on despite the lack of evidence. The media is now desperate to convince people that non-criminal activity is criminal, that the president is guilty, and that there's evidence that does not exist. They also don't want us to find out what really happened in that interview with General Flynn that led to those perjury charges. We got that and more coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you here with me on this most excellent Thursday. Excellent. Um, We need to get ready for what is going to be quite a year in uh, 2019. Uh, time Time to batten down the hatches, my friends. Get ready for the squall. Dig deep in the trench. It's going to get so much uglier. It's going to get so much crazier. How is that even possible at this point? It, it, it's hard to fathom, but I, I know it to be the case, unfortunately. Uh, a lot of very excited and, and overexcitable coverage today of this uh, situation with Maria Butina. Uh, Maria Butina, who is this Russian gun rights activist. And now she has pleaded guilty to conspiring, conspiring here, according to uh, the Washington Post, with a senior Russian official to infiltrate the conservative movement in the United States as an agent for the Kremlin from 2015 until her arrest in July. Um, She's the first Russian national who is convicted of influence, of trying to influence, seeking to influence U.S. policy in the run up to the 2016 election. This is being reported on by a credulous and ignorant media as a spy has been found. Uh, this is being reported, they're, and they're using the word spy. Yahoo has called her a spy, MSNBC. The main story on MSNBC uh, just a few moments ago when I was, when I was doing my last run of you know, the various sites that I want to make sure I go through every time I come on air. The main story was, in fact, this Maria Butina thing, and they were calling Maria Butina a spy. They were calling her a spy. Um, Here's the problem with that. She's not a spy. Now, that doesn't mean what she did is okay. It doesn't mean that what she did is, you know, just fine and dandy. But why, once again, do they have to exaggerate? Why is the media continuing its trend of pushing further than the facts when it comes to anything relating to Russia, Trump, the election, collusion, any of this stuff? Here's what really happened, based on the facts as we know them. Maria Butina, a Russian national, came to America and was trying to gain influence in decision-making circles particularly the National Rifle Association, uh, but just in general, American decision makers on the right, and wanted to open a back channel for communication uh, for the Russian government. Uh, 
or for, for prominent Russians attached to the Russian government. And, and he, here's how she's not a spy. One, she didn't ever try to access, nor did she access, sensitive or classified information. She wasn't trying to steal info. Now, maybe she would have eventually, but she, that's, not what the, that's not what the charges are. She was trying to get close to people that have influence in America. This is acting as a foreign agent. Now, this corresponds to another charge that has come up in this whole Russian collusion madness of failure to register as a foreign agent. A fa- they call it a FARA violation, Foreign Agent Registration Act. And that's when you're in America and an American who is trying to push for a foreign agent's interest here in America. Now, if you are advocating on behalf of, let's say, uh, you know, uh, Saudi interests or Turkish interests or Thai interests in America, but you're doing it openly, you're saying, hey, I really I'm advocating for Thai interests in America. That falls under FARA. And that's the kind of thing where usually when they when they catch you or if that comes to the government's attention, they say, hey, hey, you know, you got to register. All right. You got to register. It's essentially being a lobbyist. You're a lobbyist for a foreign government. You have to register. Just like how if you're a lobbyist, period, in our own government, you're supposed to register. right? So this is the equivalent of unregistered lobbying activity. Because Maria Butina was going around saying, hey, I'm Russian. I want to open up a dialogue between America and Russia. And I want to be near decision makers and people who are involved and have influence in the policy process on behalf of Russia. That's a very different thing. This is not espionage. This is not spying. This is not like Anna Chapman. Anna Chapman was accused of being what the KGB used to call an illegal, which, which essentially was a long, deep, co- you know, long time deep cover operative meant to penetrate under false pretenses the very top levels of the United States government, steal secrets and take it back to Moscow, uh, pretending not to be a Russian, right? pretending to be something else. Uh, in this instance, Maria Butina, this is somebody who is walking around saying, hey, I'm Russian and I want to talk to people about how we can get America and Russia to agree on some stuff. She's facing up to five years in federal prison. Now, now why is this so significant? By the way, far registration also came up in the General Flynn case, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. They're saying this is so important because it ties together the NRA, GOP, and Trump. So the, the, the uh, three-headed hydra that the left hates so much. They hate the GOP, they hate the NRA, and wow, do they hate Trump. And this lets them tell this tale of a woman who was trying to... Was she successful in any of this? Did she manage to influence U.S. policy at all? You know, this is this reminds me of the exaggeration of the impact of some Facebook ads. You know, when when they were asking the Google executive Pichai, CEO of Google earlier this week, how much money was spent by Russian associated accounts on Google during the election? You know, what he said it was something around the lines of about four thousand dollars. Spending $4,000 on Google to influence an election is like pouring a cup of tap water in the ocean and saying you're changing its temperature. Technically, you might have altered the temperature somewhat, but it's not percept- It's not 
something that you could perceive. It's not something you could measure. Maria Butina did not shift any U.S. policy, okay? Maria Butina was entirely unsuccessful in this, which, by the way, is why the Mueller probe didn't even handle this case. Handed it off. This was not in any way a, a major a major case of espionage. This was not something that people should be so uh, excited about and so concerned about, but it involves a Russian, it involves GOP stuff, and the elections, oh, oh my gosh, it's such a big story. We are living in a time of hysteria and delusion that is embraced by an increasingly desperate establishment. And the establishment is desperate because not only is their power coming under, uh, coming under assault and therefore its longevity is in question, but we also now are free to ask questions about why are these people the establishment? What What is it about the elites in government, in journalism, in media that has put them in that position? Should we believe them? Should we trust them? Are they particularly good or competent at what they do? No, they're not. And Trump exposes them, exposes them for not being what they think they are, which is exceptional, which is excellent at what they do. No, they just are powerful and influential, but that's different. That's a very different thing indeed. You know, you can be the leader of a foreign country because everyone thinks you're great, or you can be the leader of a foreign country because you seize power through brute force. Both cases, you're talking about a leader, but on only one side of the ledger would you have a situation where somebody could claim excellence and skill. On the other, it's just force and power. And the left is obsessed with power and with the exercise of that power. And they'll use force to get there. And anyone who challenges that is a target to be destroyed. And that's why they have to come up with all these different narratives. Narratives meant to undermine the opposition, undermine the people who are a threat to their power. Maria Butina, for example, yet another individual who, in saner times, they would just say, okay, just get out of America. They'd probably just deport her. Just say, get out of America. Go back to Russia. You know, you shouldn't be here trying to meddle in our national conversation about anything in this way. You know, you're supposed to register as a for, as a as an agent of a foreign country, right? There's foreign registration for Americans, you know, being an agent of a foreign power, and then there's being a foreigner who's an agent of a foreign power. Now, General Flynn didn't register under Farah. There are a lot of people in DC who have not registered under Farah, but they were going to use that, I think, as additional leverage against him. And this then brings me to what we see happening through all the Russia collusion stuff we see happening with General Flynn, with all the people that have been caught up, Papadopoulos and Cohen and Butina and, and others now. And that is, when is the law strict, literal, and harsh? And when is the law open to interpretation? Something that we should look through with an eye to mercy and uh, and and decency and second chances. And increasingly, in the most politically tense investigations in the country, what we find is that Democrats always take the most strict, uncharitable, vicious, aggressive view of the law, most literal interpretation of the law possible when it is negative for a Republican, 
And we always have the reverse for Democrats, whether it's Hillary or you name it. The law is malleable. The law is open to interpretation. There's room to maneuver and there's room for mercy when it's a Democrat who is at issue. This is fundamentally destroying our sense. This Mueller probe, the hysteria around all things Russia is destroying our sense that the law is impartially applied when it comes to politics. We cannot run from this. We have to confront it. We'll do more of that in just a moment. He answered a bunch of questions, um, a great number of them apparently, and the agents knew that some of those, those answers didn't fit very well with what they knew. And what's fascinating about the, the information we have is they made the conscious decision not to raise those with him. So there is a certain feeling of, of a, a trap here that obviously he never clued into. What's really troubling is not just the fact that they proceeded to, to criminalize it, but that the initial agents apparently did not believe he was intentionally lying, and they did not recommend the charge. Now, you would now fast forward to where we are now, and I can only imagine what Flynn might be thinking in reading the recent filings, because in one of the footnotes for Cohen, the prosecutors note that he came in and made all types of false statements about all types of stuff to investigators, and then simply says matter-of-factly, he then corrected those statements. And I could imagine Michael Flynn reading this thing. Wow, okay. Um, What happened to my chance to correct? That's right. What happened to Flynn's chance to correct? Who gets a second chance? Who gets the benefit of the doubt? That is what is at issue here. I'm so sick of all these smarmy left-wing lawyers and pseudo-lawyers who are saying they broke the law, pleaded guilty, taking this view of everything involving Trump and Russia and collusion and the lies and the perjury charges as though they've, they've never seen how criminal law actually functions. Some people get a lot of leeway. Other people don't. If it's based on politics, that's a huge problem. Hillary had nine lawyers in the room with her. McCabe, who's a liar and a scoundrel and was fired from the FBI for for those reasons. McCabe made sure that Flynn didn't have any lawyer in the room with him. Eh, you don't need a lawyer. You don't do that. Just, we're just going to talk to you about this thing. Liberals play dirty. And that's that's the that's the quick and dirty of what we're really talking about here. And when you see how psychologically traumatized they were by Trump's victory and you go back and just remember All the people crying at that Hillary victory party that wasn't a victory. All the different senior government employees who thought that they were going to have eight years of a glorious Clinton administration and it was going to be so fantastic for their careers. And also it was really uh, a, a pinnacle moment for a certain kind of liberal boomer that Hillary's eight years was going to be a kind of golden era of of, you know, Democrat liberalism in America and that that was stolen from them and that it was so unfair and so wrong and they lashed out and people within the government, it wasn't just outside of government, they lashed out too. And yet, as I sit here, I still note that they have not produced any evidence of collusion and they are still going after people for the, the pettiest of crimes. I mean, they're going after people for uh, for lies that don't really seem like lies. They have all these shady dealings around 
figures in the government. I mean, I mean, Comey said just this past weekend, if the administration was better organized, they never would have let Flynn sit down with with some FBI guys without the White House counsel present. You know, he's basically like we slipped we slipped a couple guys in there. You know, we slipped them under the radar. You're going to do that to the national security advisor. People say, oh, Buck, but but law enforcement uses tricks and techniques and and, you know, essentially lying all the time to get people. Yeah, but they usually don't do it without a criminal predicate to the national security advisor. I mean, give me a break. Your law enforcement could also theoretically exercise any warrant that they want to if they can convince a judge to sign off on it to, you know, bat, batter down your front door and, and you know, send in an armored carrier and three and a SWAT team. But, you know, usually if they're just trying to find out if you, you know, are running a credit card fraud scam or something, they don't do that. Discretion is a necessary component of the justice system, right? There, there has to be good faith action from the people that are entrusted with the power, and we're not seeing good faith action. And that's why, I mean, I think Trump should, look, Trump should pardon Flynn. Full stop. Pardon General Flynn. Play 13. I never directed him to do anything incorrect or wrong. And he understands that. Look, he did some bad things unrelated to me. In order to embarrass me, they cut his term down. How many people, when they say, listen, if you embarrass the president of the United States, we'll give you a deal. Your father-in-law, your wife, we'll cut your jail. That's all it is. It's a terrible system we have. It's going on right now with General Flynn. The FBI said he didn't lie, but Mueller said he did lie. So they took a man who's a general and a respected person and a nice man. And I don't even know what he said about me because, you know, maybe they scared him enough that he'll make up a story. But I have a feeling that maybe he didn't. He's a tougher kind of a guy than Cohn. But they took a general that they said didn't lie and they convinced him he did lie and he made some kind of a deal. And now they're recommending no time. You know why? Because they're embarrassed that they got caught. I think there's a lot of the president's right on them on this one. He knows. You know, Cohen Cohen can't prove the president told him to do anything wrong. Cohen's the lawyer. He should know better. Advice of counsel is a real thing. And what they did to Flynn, I'll just say it again, they did Flynn dirty. Remember why Mueller was set up? Mueller was set up as a special counsel to look at was there any collusion and any influence of Russia uh, through the Trump campaign and influencing the election. There's been no evidence of collusion at this point. And if there's anything about Cohn yesterday that indirectly affects the president, remember the information came from a guy that was a liar and accused of lying to the Congress of the United States. So how much credibility do you want to put in the words of a liar? It's a fair point from Chuck Grassley there. One other thing before we move on to some other topics, I want to talk to you about the Women's March and how it's in the midst of some some disarray. Looks like the Women's March is, uh, they're not all marching in the same direction. There's some problems there. Also, the Senate, uh, some some break news on the Senate and Yemen and Khashoggi. Oh, they're not they're not going to let this thing go, even though now, now it's it's too late for people to realize because everyone has just assumed that they spent so much time on Khashoggi because he must be a, U, you know, a U.S. person, meaning either a citizen or a green card holder. He's not. Guy was a visitor, a visitor to this country. Are we responsible now for changing our foreign policy based on anyone anywhere in the world that has something terrible happen to them? If they're a journalist, we 
we then have to change our foreign policy in a whole region because of it? That's the new standard? It's not a very it's not a very wise standard if in fact that that is our standard. I mean, the world is a dangerous place. I, I hate to be the the bearer of platitudes. But there's one more thing here on the whole the, the DOJ's conduct, and I'm I'm happy that a judge, Judge Sullivan, sounds like he wants to see those 302s. It seems very clear that with the seven-month lag between when the FBI had the initial sit-down with Flynn and when they filed the 302, and that we've already seen reporting that the, the, the FBI agents did not initially think that he lied, and they, they didn't bring charges right away, it seems very clear that they just they fabricated a pretext. You know, it's, it's not that hard to do this. It's not that hard to go through someone's testimony, and if you really, really want to get them, find something that is technically not accurate and say, well, you say you misremembered. We say it's a lie. Guess what? Their version is enough to get you prosecuted. And then once they're prosecuting you, you're in a position where you can either fight them and try to clear your name and risk complete financial ruin and long prison sentence, or you say, all right, I'll do whatever you say. I'll do whatever you say. But but here's something that I think is worth pointing. This is from Bree Payton at The Federalist. The Department of Justice wiped text messages between former FBI employees Lisa Page and Peter Strzok from their cell phones before the Office of the Inspector General could review them, according to a new report from the DOJ watchdog. Page and Strzok's involvement with special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation has been heavily scrutinized after it was revealed they had sent numerous and to one another Mueller has been tasked with looking into whether or not Donald Trump and his campaign associates coordinated with Russian officials to steal the 2016 election away from Hillary Clinton. The 11-page report reveals that almost a month after Strzok was removed from Mueller's team, his government-issued iPhone was wiped clean and restored to factory settings by another individual working in Mueller's office. Special counsel's records officer told investigators she determined it did not contain records that needed to be retained. No substantive text notes or reminders. Wow, isn't that convenient? Inspector General just has somebody look at Struck and Page's phones and go, yeah, there's nothing here we need to retain. We're just gonna we're just gonna get rid of it. Okay. Because we've seen a lot of stuff from them that should have been retained. And a lot of stuff that the FBI didn't want to release, by the way. So somebody want to explain that one to me? Oh, that's just a coincidence, right? It's it's always, this is what you get from the anti-Trump Hillary lovers out there. It, it's always just a coincidence when something like this goes down. You know, when Hillary used bleach bit on her own server, eh, you know, that was just a mistake. You know what? Like wipe it like with a cloth, she said. Like with a cloth? Wiping it? Hello? Don't you miss her? Don't you wish she was president? Oh, I know. I know. It could still happen. I, I still think she's, you haven't heard much about it recently. I still think she's running as much as everyone else thinks. That's crazy. Meanwhile, despite all this stuff going on, there's at least one poll out today that says that Trump is about as popular at this point in his presidency as Obama was in his presidency. So, you know, you've got the entire media saying Trump is a criminal, actually saying Trump is a criminal, actively rooting for his administration to collapse people to go to prison, Trump's son-in-law to be indicted, I mean, son rather to be indicted, and his son-in-law to be indicted. And meanwhile, the president keeps in the fight. I, I got to give him credit. And he even likes likes the job, play 14. 
I love getting things done for the people. Uh, it's a nasty job because I get hit so hard, so unfairly by so many. I mean, really unfairly. When you look at what we've done with taxes, what we've done with regulations, what we've done with China and national defense and so many other things, including the environment. Let me tell you, the Paris Accord is not working out too well for Paris. Wow. Take a look at what's happening. France is there. struggling. That whole country is burning down, okay? So, and I was the one that kept us out of the Paris Accord. If I was in the Paris Accord, we would be paying trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars for nothing. And I wouldn't do that. And my people love the job I'm doing. You know, the one thing, if I could get a little wish for 2019, I would just like the administration's critics to focus on policies they don't like instead of this just craziness about Russia and payoffs and women and they're just all this nonsense. It's all inflated. It's all exaggerated. They're connecting dots that aren't even there. You know, tell me you don't like Trump because of the taxes. Tell me you don't like Trump because, you know, of of immigration. Fine. At least that we could have a discussion with somebody. But if you really think that there was some Kremlin conspiracy, I just I don't even know what to say to those people. You know, at some point you run out of a middle ground for any kind of a conversation. Oh, one more thing here on the chief of staff. This was all from a Harris Faulkner interview on Fox News today. Harris got to sit down. Congrats to her on uh, on the with the president uh, on the chief of staff situation. Play fifteen. We're interviewing people now for chief of staff. Yes. How long is the now? Five people, really good ones, terrific people, mostly well known, but uh, terrific people. That actually wasn't from the Harris interview. That was from a, just a press conference. But uh, you know, I'm just saying, it's Christmas and my birthday coming up, Mr. President. You need a chief of staff. The buck gets results. I'm just putting it out there. I know that people in the White House listen to the show. The buck gets results. That's all, there, that's all there is to it. But you got to let him do his radio show still. Um, disputes in, in the Democratic Party base because they all hate one another. Um, I mean, you have the Muslims and the Jews and the various exotic sexual groups and the the black church ladies with with um, you know the college queers the only thing that keeps this the, the democratic base together is for them to keep focusing on no white men are the one keep, ones keeping you down you must hate white men it's the one thing they all have co- in common now it shouldn't be any surprise but that little soundbite from Ann Coulter on Fox News made lots of uh, liberal heads explode they got very upset about that but she was asked about a very specific thing, and that is a piece that came out this week in Tablet Magazine with the title, Is the Women's March Melting Down? And we have somebody who can talk to us a little bit about what the heck is going on here with the whole Women's March movement and allegations of anti-Semitism within the leadership and all kinds of stuff going on there. Inez Felcher is with us now. She is a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum, uh, Inez, what, what is the truth theory? Is the Women's March melting down? What's happening? Well, they're certainly having quite a bit of drama in, in advance of their, their next march, which, just to remind folks, is, is in the end of January. Uh, so this is not good timing for them. But, yes, this refers to a piece that came out in Tablet Magazine um, talking about how even at, from the very first meeting of the leadership at the Women's March, there were uh, anti-Semitic elements to it, right? That uh, some of the, the uh, March leaders or March organizers 
or talking about how, for example, Jewish people apparently bear a special collective responsibility as exploiters of black and brown people, and and um, also the the false. Um, the false canard that uh, Jews were the the leaders of the American slave trade, that they were the the genius behind the American slave trade or something like that. These are are, um, charges that come from Louis Farrakhan's book, uh, The Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews. Um, So there's not really actually, this is a bit frustrating because conservatives and conservative media have been pointing out the anti-Semitic elements and the anti-Semitic statements that have come out from leaders of the Women's March from day one, but only because this tablet magazine expose has now been published is it getting any kind of mainstream coverage. But this is another one of those frustrating moments where it's like, yes, conservatives have known this for two years. Where were you, mainstream media? And I mean, Linda Sarsour, whom I actually bumped into once at Union Station in D.C., which is funny. She didn't know who I was, but I was like, oh, wow, that's Linda Sarsour. Look at that. Uh, Linda Sarsour is somebody who is very much associated with the Women's March and definitely has a fondness for some anti-Semitic folks. Yeah, so um, so Linda Sarsour and Tamika Mallory are the two folks who um, who get brought up in these contexts a lot. They both have long-standing relationships with Louis Farrakhan and with the Nation of Islam. Um, they've also refused to back down from those relationships. This is not one of those things where um, increasingly common, unfortunately, where the social media mob pulls out a tweet out of context from 10 years ago. Um, these are active and ongoing relationships, and, and both women have, have pretty much refused to disavow Louis Farrakhan, who, by the way, is the most famous anti-Semite in America. It's basically him and David Duke. They can, they can duke haha, it out um, for that top spot. But these are not sort of... Um, you know, sort of, you're not dealing with, with things that are, are maybe ambiguous or can be read both ways. No, no, no. Like, Louis Farrakhan calls Jews termites on, on Twitter. And by the way, Twitter doesn't ban him for that. And, and these leaders of the, the Women's March have refused to uh, break their association with Louis Farrakhan. If this were on the right, by the way, if this were a, a Trump rally or, or a, um, for example, the Tea Party movement, can you imagine that this would go two years without getting the kind of coverage that it's getting now? Of course, it would not. It would be on the front page of every magazine and every news broadcast um, for months until everybody involved resigned in disgrace. I mean, I just got to say, you know, the March leaders were named 2017 Women of the Year by Glamour magazine. There was a glossy book published with Condé Nast on them. They have a lucrative merchandise uh, uh, business selling branded Women's March gear. They've raised millions of dollars through donations and institutional funding. They've gotten money from places like Planned Parenthood and the Hospital Workers Union. Uh, What's this? Fortune magazine named Mallory, Linda Sarsour, Perez, and Bland to its list of the world's greatest leaders. And New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand... Uh, in explaining why these four women were on Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people, wrote, the Women's March was the most inspiring and transformational moment I've ever witnessed in politics, and it happened because of these four extraordinary women, and she names them, Mallory, Bland, Perez, Sarsour. That's all from this Talbot Magazine piece. And let me just tell you, Inez, I interviewed Bob Bland. She's a lunatic. Um, yeah, and by the way, Linda Sarsour opened at a rally for uh, Peter Gillibrand. So these these folks were well integrated into the Democratic Party. They were mainstream folks in the Democratic Party. Um, and as you said, they got this 
you know, sort of star-studded coverage from everything from serious coverage in places like the New York Times um, and mainstream uh, TV networks, but also, I mean, the, the glossy magazine from from Condé Nast, the uh, all the glamour shots, and by the way, all of those donations you talked about. One of the other allegations in the Tablet Mag piece, and this has also been covered by the Daily Beast in the past is that a lot of that money has sort of disappeared and there's some allegations of financial impropriety on, on the part of these, these um, women's march organizers. So, again, all of this stuff would have been immediately plastered on uh, across the news were these women the leaders of, say, conservative movements. Um, but because they were the, the, the leaders of the women's march, a lot of this stuff was sort of pushed down and, and ignored for years, for almost two years, until finally this massive expose gets published. And by the way, they're still trying to fight back against this. So uh, a lot of um, reporters and journalists who tweeted out this tablet mag piece received an email from a PR firm hired by the Women's March, basically asking them to delete their critical tweets in exchange for for unidentified off-the-record information. <laughs> I saw this. Can you I saw imagine this. Can you imagine if, like, the press office of the White House, for example, or or going back the Trump campaign, tweeted out or, or uh, emailed a bunch of reporters and said, if you take back your critical tweets, we might give you some off-the-record information. It would be the end of journalism if he had done that. But because they did that, it got a little mockery from the right, but just basically passed unnoticed. You know, this this women's march that's supposed to happen at the end of January, I'm a, is this going to be, it's going to be in D.C., isn't it? They're, they're going to march right past my apartment, aren't they? This is terrifying. Oh, they they, um, they marched past my apartment last year. But um, <laughs> what the funniest uh. part of the women's march last year to me is, is um, I, I was actually just trying to, trying to go see a movie with my husband and, and got like sort of caught up in this, this march and tried to get through. Uh, but the funniest part of it to me was that they all went for brunch afterwards, apparently, because I was sitting in restaurants and all around <laughs> me were women enjoying expensive brunches with the, the P word hats on their heads. Um, and they left their signs all over the city. And, and this is, you know, this is sort of par for the course, right? Are, are, um, are you and some of the other conservative women of D.C. Uh, considering a, a very, a very staid and polite counter protest where you're all showing up and, and you know, just holding up signs with things like we don't hate men and we actually believe in, you know, in life and, and having babies and, you know, things like that. And anything <laughs> in the works? Um, well, IWF, Independent Women's Forum, we're definitely planning on covering the Women's March. I don't know if we're going to counter protest it yet or, or if we're just going to maybe um, ask some pointed questions at these marches. I don't know exactly what that coverage is going to look like yet, but we're definitely planning on being there and pushing back against this narrative, right? Because it's always... It's always the the groups on the left that then claim to speak for women as a whole, right? It, it's it's never the groups on the right that claim to speak for all women. It's always National Organization for Women, the Women's March. Well, let me tell you, all women don't support the Women's March. They don't support the anti-Semitism of Linda Sarsour and Tamika Mallory, and um, and they definitely don't support a lot of the fringe beliefs of the far left feminist uh, agenda. So those those are. They represent themselves. They represent, you know, a certain percentage of women. But really, at the end of the day, less than a third of American women even call themselves or even identify as feminists. So really, these women are representing a very small group of people in this country. All right. Inez Felcher, everybody. Independent Women's Forum. And look for her stuff on thefederalist.com, too. Inez, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Buck. Team, we'll be right back. 
If you're like me, you use email every day, probably too much throughout the day. But that also means that, you know, you should think about what is this company really like that you're trusting all this information to? Are they left wing? Do you think that they're scanning your information? Are they selling stuff to third parties? Skip all that nonsense. Join iPatriots.us iPatriots.us is a new conservative alternative to liberal-based email services. If you're, com if you're concerned at all about your current email service, your privacy, and protection, this is the option for you. iPatriots.us is secure, private, and includes more of what you want without the ads and spam. Your email and files are going to be safe with their high-end antivirus, anti-spam encrypted software, okay? iPatriots.us won't sell your information, and it doesn't support liberal agenda items. Show you're a patriot. Go to iPatriots.us now. Choose your membership program and input your desired iPatriots email address during checkout. Enter promo code BUCK for 10% savings during your first year of membership. Again, enter promo code BUCK at iPatriots.us. They say that walls don't work. And a wall won't solve it. All that he's doing is putting up walls around people's hearts. And we are not a wall away from being better. Don't waste billions of dollars of taxpayer uh, money in order to build something that will not make our border more secure. They say a wall is racist. The president went to the heart of what I call his brown menace theory. These migrants, they're dirty people. They bring disease. This border wall thing is about controlling the browning of America. Donald Trump is fixated on the southern border as he was the day that he announced this campaign. It is not about securing the borders. It is about uh, xenophobic, racist, bigoted beliefs. Which one is it or is it both? Walls are racist and walls don't work? I'm just wondering, if walls don't work, why do Republicans want it so badly? Or at least... Why does Trump want it so badly? Why do people who voted for Trump want it so badly? We, we, should, we should feel comfortable digging into these questions a little bit. Because, first of all, of, of course uh, a, a wall works. Oh, and the other, the other objection to it is that it's so expensive. Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, it's very pricey, the wall. It's going to cost so much money. It's going to be so expensive. I don't know what I'm going to do. Play five. I think border security is enormously important, but I think building a wall is a very costly and inefficient way to do that. And I'm not alone. I mean, many experts think that given the kind of technology that we have today, we can protect our southern border without building the wall and spending $5 billion. Furthermore, I'm not quite sure. He may, but I'm not quite sure that he has the votes in the House. Well, that last part is a non sequitur. I mean, it's irrelevant. It's not Democrats' job to worry about whether Republicans have the votes in the House, okay? Senator Sanders can leave that up to the Republican Congress. But notice how with each of the objections, when you push back a little bit, when you look at the facts a little bit more, the objection starts to fall apart. Let's start with this. It's, they say it's racist. Okay, is the Israeli border wall racist? Okay, they, some of them might say yes. Some libs in this country would probably say yes. Is the wall that the Saudis are building, the fence that the Saudis are building between uh, Saudi Arabia and Yemen, is that racist? Is the wall in the Western Sahara racist? Is the demilitarized zone be between North and South? I'm not saying it's a good idea, if it's fair. I'm just asking, is it racist? Is the barrier between North and South Korea, is that racist? 
But, you know, what about the what about the fence that we have in San Diego? Was that racist? Should we tear it down because it's a monument to racism? If the answer is no, I'd like to know why. In terms of the cost, we just hit pretty much today, I think, it's official, $22 trillion in debt. We are $22 trillion in debt as a country. Uh, that is an astonishing number, considering that it wasn't long ago at all that we weren't even into double digits on our national debt. And yet here we are. We are spending ourselves into oblivion. Our political system is effectively now built upon intergenerational theft. Our political system is built upon people passing laws that give benefits today based on IOUs that those in the future will have to pay. That's not the way a responsible country is run. But nonetheless, when you're $22 trillion in debt and you have a major crisis continuing to occur at the border, I don't want to hear about how $5 billion is too much to spend on something that is absolutely critical to U.S. sovereignty and to rule of law. So the the, the notion that, that the real issue here is cost is laughable. And I'm consistent on this. People will point out that the Mueller probe, for example, has cost has cost money. And I always say to them, yes, I understand the Mueller probe has cost money. But if there really was Russian collusion, $50 million wouldn't be too much to pay to find that out. The reason the Mueller probe is too much money isn't because it's in principle too much money. It's because the whole thing is a witch hunt. It's a waste. It's a crock. It's a joke. A border wall is certainly not that. Oh, and, and then Chuck and Nancy all of a sudden. They are experts on the wall. Play four. Need border security. The wall is a part of border security. You can't have very good border security without the wall. That's no. absolutely not true. Just that can't. is a political promise. Border security is a way to effectively honor our responsibility. And the experts say you can do border security without a wall, which is wasteful and doesn't solve the problem. I mean, when, when he says that, when he says the experts say, I always want to push back and say, well, what about the head of border patrol? What about the head of customs enforcement? The people that have been working on the border for years and years and years, they say that a wall is immensely helpful. So are, are they just misinformed? Are they paid for by big wall, you know, instead of big oil? I, I just want to know. Why are they so confused? Who are these experts? Are these immigration attorneys and activists that they're citing that, that say that you don't need a wall to do this? A wall would certainly help. And it has helped in, in many places, as we know. Um, here is David Rubin, who was the former mayor of Shiloh, Israel, talking about what the wall in Israel did for their security, for their safety, and for the population of the state of Israel. Play clip eight. Between 2010 and 2012, there were 55,000 illegal immigrants into Israel. The rapes and murders in southern Tel Aviv skyrocketed, skyrocketed in those few years. The Israeli government made a decision that they were going to build a wall, uh, a high-tech steel wall on the southern border. In 2016, the wall was up. 2016, there were 11 illegal immigrants who entered Israel. 
in, and, and then they raised the height of the wall an additional several feet. And in 2017, there was not one illegal immigrant that made it through the southern border into Israel. So that it's is a, a remarkable it, story. It works. It works. From 55,000 across this one area into Israel to zero. Now, I understand that the lib argument here is, well, it might be 55,000, but what if a dozen people get across? Then you could say a wall doesn't stop everybody. Yeah, but would you rather have 55,000 illegal crossings or a dozen or five or 500 or even 5,000? Security is about risk mitigation and doing the best you can with what you have. We're not doing the best we can with what we have. Now, there's one other point, by the way, that I wanted to make that, that I think often uh, escapes the conversation here. You know, when people talk about anchor babies, which I know now it's, uh, you're not supposed to say this anymore. You know, they, they have different, they talk about family unification policy, reunification. It's not anchor babies. One aspect of this that, that does not get talked about enough is that, you know, that when somebody has a child in the United States and then they are to be deported, even if they are a criminal, meaning that they commit a crime here, if they had a child in the United States, it's considered a family separation. So if you are in America and you are a member of a cartel or you are somebody who's involved in drug trafficking in a, in a, at a serious level uh, and you're supposed to be deported from the country by Immigrations and Customs Enforcement uh, and you've had a kid in America, guess what? Now the liberal argument is we can't deport that person because, oh, that's right, we're separating families. So the anchor isn't just for people who are, are in America and, and might get deported otherwise, right? The anchor then also extends to people who fall into the uh, criminal justice system. Now, now the argument is made that you, you, can't, you can't deport them. You can only incarcerate them for whatever their sentence is because that would be, that would be breaking apart families. Meanwhile, people that get sent to prison who are just Americans, those families are broken up every day and liberals don't shed any big tears over that one. So there's a, there's a lot of dishonesty around this issue. Uh, by the way, I saw Tom Homan last night and I always really like this guy. We got, I got to chat with him a little bit. We always, whenever I see him in Fox, we have a discussion about the border. Uh, here's what he says about things. Play nine. I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat. Every one of those people should want to vote to secure the border. There's no downside on securing a border. Less Ill illegal immigration, less illegal drugs being smuggled. The walls have proven they worked. Back in the early 80s, I was a border patrol agent standing on the line in San Diego. Thousands came through every night. But once they built that border barrier, the, the illegal crossings decreased dramatically. It has proven it worked in San Diego, Yuma, El Paso. It has proven 100% effective. So why would we not want a wall? Because they don't want it to be effective. I mean, I know Tom knows that, but that's the truth. The problem with the wall is not that it doesn't work. The problem that Democrats have with it is that it does, which tells you everything you need to know about where they really stand on immigration and how they really feel about security at our southern border. You've got a lot of liberals and a lot of conservatives these days talking about maybe there needs to be a breakup of the monopoly that these social media companies have because of the ideological bias on display. Well, that's one option, but you know what a better option is? Just have a platform where you don't have to worry about bias. That's snippy.com. 
Thousands of listeners to this show have joined Snippy.com, and they're expressing their opinions and stirring up lively conversations. Snippy's an unbiased social media platform. It's all about conversation and community. Snippy not only encourages freedom of expression, but it guarantees users the ability to discuss topics freely without suppression from administrators, okay? It is completely free to join. You got nothing to lose here. Just go check it out for yourself. SNIPPY.com. No shadow banning and no suppression of conservative thought ever. And now Snippy's got an updated user interface and exciting new features. It's available in the Apple App Store and available for Android. Snippy.com is your new alternative social media. I would love to be able to regulate the content of speech. The First Amendment prevents me from doing so. And that's simply a function of the First Amendment. But I think over the long run, it's better that government does not regulate the content of speech. That's uh, Ted Lieu, Congressman Lieu, who you know is, is increasingly popular in these uh, progressive commentary circles on TV because he's, you know, he's a guy who likes to drop the rhetorical bombs. But once again, you get liberals here really uh, telling you What's in their heart? What's in their mind? What they really think about certain issues. And, and on, on this, the, the speech police situation and, and the desire of social media platforms and college campuses and now corporate America to regulate the content of speech, understand that you know even when you have a congressman who's supposed to be all about upholding and defending the Constitution, they if they're Democrats... They would like to be able to tell you what you can and can't say. And they have the hubris and the arrogance to believe that they know what's best for you to be able to say and not say. But they got to kind of admit that there's a little problem there with the First Amendment, at least when it comes to the government. Yeah, technically, the government probably shouldn't be doing content. But but they they want to be in a position to dictate to you. And that totalitarian impulse is in and of itself problematic. And you see it now operating at so many different levels on the left. Uh, you, you see it among people in the government who are, are embracing language, language restrictions that are constantly changing too and are only becoming more restrictive, right? We're, we're never told, oh, you can actually, you can talk about that issue. T- turns out we were wrong and we can have a free and open debate about this. No, it's just more and more things are being taken off the table. You know, more areas of, of debate and inquiry and discussion are, are essentially roped off from discourse. Uh, this has been go this has been a long-standing project of the left to to change the way we can talk, to change the way that you know we or are allowed to discuss issues because as I as I've mentioned to you many times if they can determine the words for you they can largely direct the thoughts for you uh, they can influence debate and discussion in ways that it's hard to even quantify and really even understand because we're just now automatically the the grounds of the discussion are, are moving toward what they want, toward the policy ends that they would prefer. Um, but free speech is under is under a very direct assault in this country, uh, and, and it's only going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, the social media platforms are obviously a big part of this. But, you know, Democrats now, and, and, you know, by the way, this is also, 
you know, I, I go back and forth with what should we do? How do we fight back against this? You know, you've had a, you have sometimes these these Hollywood lib types get away with saying really offensive stuff. I mean, you know, Mika Brzezinski just said uh, somebody was a a blank boy, um, and you know that that the president was acting in this way, and she's not she's not going to fire because she's in tight with MSNBC. I don't know why anyone likes that show, Morning Joe. I really struggle with what the what the upside of it is. Um, but then, the, you know, there are other times of people that you you think maybe are are above reproach and they get canned. You know, and the heart of tyranny, and whether it's the tyranny of government or the tyranny of a society that is abandoning principles of freedom, abandoning principles regarding liberty, the heart of tyranny is not the draconian enforcement of regulations, standards, and laws. It's the feckless. It's the, uh, you know, the, the, the constantly changing. Um, it's the capriciousness in the enforcement of laws. It's people saying, yeah, well, you know, you said that, so you get fired. You said something very similar, but you don't get fired. Because you know what that means? The person with all the power is the person deciding, the person with that discretion. See, it's kind of like what we see with the DOJ and the FBI, right? I mean, the, the, the big problem is not that laws on perjury and processes around investigations are too strict. It's that they're only too strict when it comes to Republicans, to conservatives, to Trump allies. Well, this is obviously politically motivated, and that's why that keeps happening. We also see this with the speech police, whether we're talking about you know, Kevin Hart, or we're talking about Mika Brzezinski, you know, there's these different standards that evolve for individuals based upon where they fall in the political spectrum. And it's just exhausting. I would love for this not to be the case in this country. I would love for us to be in a place where we have some some hope, some sense that, you know, the, the standard will at least be uni- uniformly applied when it comes to what's unacceptable to say when it comes to what's far too, you know, what, what's beyond the pale. But, you know, we're not there. We're not there. And, and what really separates ideologically, what separates the left from the right in the most general terms is they, they always think that they should be the ones in control because they, they believe that their judgment on these matters and their ability to use state power to uh, exercise that judgment uh, that they think that they always know what the best way is. It's it's troubling, but it's what's going to happen. Um, by the way, you know the uh, a- speaking of these shows, ABC is going to bring back the Connors for season two. The ratings were actually good. You know, Roseanne got fired for uh, for a you know a racist tweet. One one racist tweet, she's out. A homophobic comment from Mika, she's not out. I mean, you know, you how do you gauge these things? Well. Depends on what the executives at the time think and how much heat they're willing to take. But it uh, looks like they're going to bring back that show, The Connors, which I think is kind of a surprise. Uh, John, did you see it? Mike, did you see this? I never saw it. I don't know. If, I don't. I didn't see it. I, I saw the first Roseanne. I did not think the first Roseanne was funny, the new one. Nah, yeah, the first episode was okay. It was, yeah, it was just, you know, it felt a little contrived to me, the whole thing. But. Yeah. You know, this is, you know, the speech and the, the way that people get judged by these things. You know, there's a lot of money, a lot of jobs that can hang in the balance on this stuff. So 
Uh, we shall see. I, I got to talk to you about the Khashoggi situation. I know we've, you know, you got an update on this. The Senate has taken an action. Not, it's not important. It's an action that won't result in any further action, most likely. But uh, we've got to get to the heart of what's going on here with this foreign policy. Oh, and by the way, I, I stumbled into some protesters last night who were protesting at a, at a White House official's house. And I happened to walk right in the middle of that protest and speak to their organizers. I got some exclusive audio for you. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Some breaking news. The Senate voted just a couple of hours ago, 57 to 38, to end U.S. military involvement in Yemen as lawmakers are still very, very upset over the killing of Khashoggi and what they say is the unacceptable response of the Trump administration to this. All right. This, like Russia, is turning into its own form of hysteria and pushing us closer and closer to some very bad decision making, I think. Let's just start with this. Jamal Khashoggi is not an American citizen was not a citizen, was not a permanent resident. Jamal Khashoggi was not a U.S. national. This is not one of ours who was killed in a foreign consulate on foreign soil by a foreign entity. He's not. And there was a lot of lying. I, I checked into this to, to make sure that, the, that, that I have this right because I think it's really important. We were being told for weeks Weeks and weeks that he was a green card holder, a green card holder, which means he's he's a permanent resident of America. He could stay here his whole life. His kids will be Americans. That is false. He was an O-1 visa holder. He was a visitor to this country who wrote a column for the Washington Post. Now, none of that mitigates the brutal torture and murder that he suffered. That doesn't change anything, but it does affect the U.S. responsibility for a major response to this. So let's just all be very clear. There was an obvious effort early on to create the perception that Khashoggi was a U.S. person. We need to do more. America needs to speak up for one of its own here, and we need to take decisive action to punish Saudi Arabia for this. Not just to speak out, but to... But to Make sure that they feel consequences for it. And only now that, you've, that they've got this cycle of, oh my gosh, Khashoggi, and you know, Khashoggi's now part of the people that are honored for being Time Magazine you know, person of the year, along with, and, and I'm not trying to be controversial here, but you know, that, uh, that newspaper in Maryland where there was the mass shooting, they're also, they're also covered in this man of the year or person of the year in Time Magazine. And they weren't killed because of the danger of their journalism assignments. This was a personal feud with a psychopath who went in and shot them all and shot five of them. And in in essence, this is the equivalent of a postal worker who goes in and, and shoots a bunch of people he used to work with or something. I mean, this is a that was a personal grudge. You know, to, to say that that's a guardians of our democracy situation is i think uh it's a terrible situation it's a tragedy but i think it's something of a stretch to include that as a a guardian of our democracy yeah they were doing their jobs and 
Some of them got shot because there was a maniac running around who didn't like some of the stories that they had written, but it wasn't because they were speaking truth to power. It was just a crazy person. But back to Khashoggi, if I can, for a moment here. What the Senate has done is essentially senatorial virtue signaling. The House has already made it clear that they're not going to go ahead with this measure. There's not going to be any real change in U.S. foreign policy vis-a-vis the Saudis because of it, but they're, they're just wanting to get on record. And it's because the elites, the establishment uh, inside the Beltway and in the media here in America, has made the Khashoggi issue really just a big opportunity to bash Trump. And that's why they're so fixated on this. Uh, this is why Jamal Khashoggi is the most famous, well-known dissident to have been killed by a foreign power by, by far, despite the fact that there are a whole bunch of people in recent years who have been killed by Russia, who, you know, who have been taken out uh, as a result of their criticisms of a regime. And it's because there's, there's a tie-in here where they're able to bash Trump. And anytime you can bash Trump, journalists get very, very excited and they're very interested, obviously, about that opportunity. But our policy in Saudi, with backing Saudi Arabia, and specifically the war in Yemen, is that we don't want Yemen to fall into the hands of an enemy. And that's what would occur if the Saudis weren't engaged in this bombing campaign. You would have the Houthis, who are a, a Shia faction inside of Yemen, who are backed by the Iranians. You'd have the Houthis likely able to seize power. You also have a very active... Al-Qaeda branch in Yemen, and we're trying to suppress that and support the legitimate government as we see it inside of Yemen, and the Saudis are our best uh, proxy for doing that. But this is all because of, of Iran, and this is because of some very serious interests we have at preventing the southern portion of the Arabian Peninsula from effectively becoming a launch pad for terrorist attacks. Remember, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula was, just a few years ago, considered the most active terror franchise at external plotting, meaning coming after the U.S. and its interests. And Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula has been behind some very high-profile international attacks and attempted attacks in Europe and in the United States. So we can try to pretend like there's no real U.S. interest in what's going on in Yemen. Unfortunately, it's not true. And on the humanitarian side, and I'm somebody who has been trying to raise the alarm about what's going on in Yemen for a long time. We've done segments at Hill TV. Look, I'm just going to tell you this. We did a segment five months ago, at least, on Hill TV about the war in Yemen and how it's the biggest humanitarian disaster in the world and it just didn't get very much attention. Uh, people didn't seem that interested in that particular story. And I, I don't know, I can't, maybe we just didn't do a good enough job presenting it. I would think that the biggest humanitarian crisis on planet Earth would be something a lot of people were interested in. But I mean other journos, I mean other people in the media who saw us covering that, not a lot of not a lot of high level, not a lot of high level interest. And I think in general there hasn't been that much interest. Until now, because now it is, look at how terrible Yemen is. Look at what the Saudis are doing. Trump is so nice to the Saudis. 
this is all about bashing Trump. You know, they just keep using this kind of transitive property of criticism to eventually bring it back to how Trump is the bad guy here. And, you know, I would note that these same journos who are writing a lot of stories now about what's going on with the humanitarian crisis in Yemen were pretty muted for a long time about the fact that the Obama administration presided over a a supposed coalition to end the war in Syria, which has now killed close to 600,000 people. And there was not a, a unified voice from journalists saying that Obama had failed, despite the fact that it, it was supposed to be U.S. leadership. Remember, we're the ones that negotiated with the Assad regime to get the chemical weapons out. You know, that was a John Kerry, Barack Obama move. You know, they were very much involved. And the whole thing was a disaster. Syria has just been gutted top to bottom. I mean, Syria is a a shadow of of its former self as a country. And there was a lot of just incompetence on display from the Obama administration during that. And journalists just, it was never really Obama's fault, though. They never really wanted to say that Obama was making bad decisions there. Meanwhile, we're not the ones that are bombing Yemen. The Saudis are bombing Yemen, but we want the Saudis to be able to back the legitimate government in Yemen over rebel groups that are proxies for Iran and over al-Qaeda. And we're supposed to change all that and give up that policy, shift around that policy because a, a foreigner, let's just say it, I mean, a foreign journalist was killed in a foreign country by a foreign entity. And this is now all America's problem? I mean, this this guy was not one of ours. And so why are we so much more, you know, orders of magnitude more upset about this than the journalists who are tortured and killed in places like Turkey and places like Russia and places all over the world? You know what the answer is. It's not about the best interest of the American people. It's not about U.S. foreign policy and geopolitics. It's about, can it be attributed to Trump? Is it an opportunity to bash Trump? That's why they're so interested in this. It's really gross. You know, I do have to ask the question. I've got to keep it real. Why does the president have some of these just utter bozos from his past that he brought into this administration, you know, what what it motivates the president to do this? Because there have been some people who, uh, does anyone want to make excuses for Omarosa? The president certainly doesn't. Does anyone want to make excuses for the mooch? Hey, Scaramucci. Uh, the president, well, I guess they're on good terms now. Does anyone want to want to talk about how great Steve Bannon is? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't hear a lot of that. Certainly, I don't hear much of it when it comes to Cohen, including from the president who says that Cohen is now terrible. So why would somebody as terrible as Cohen get as close to, never mind the president of the United States, a successful businessman like Donald Trump? Well, good news. We got the president to give an answer today. If we can, Michael Cohen, he was your attorney. Three years he was sentenced yesterday, and it may seem like he got a break because it could have been twice as much, but it's still three years in federal prison, $500,000 in restitution. This was someone who surreptitiously recorded you. Terrible. uh, Is now known as a criminal liar. 
Yet this was someone who was in your inner circle. Yeah. Well, it happens. I mean, look, it happens. I hire usually good people, but it just happens. Why did you hire Michael Cohen? A he was known as ago, a fixer. Tell you, first of all, that first was his all, title. He did a very low-level work. Why did he you did need more him? public relations than he did law? But he did stuff. You'd see him on television, and he was okay on television. But years ago, many years, like 12, 13 years ago, he did me a favor. Did Trump a favor? I've heard this before, and I've been wondering when we'll finally get to find out what this favor was that got Cohen so deep into the president's good graces that he would become, he's certainly in his inner circle. I mean, he's a guy who was very close to the president for a number of years. I don't think anybody disputes that. So, So what, in fact, was this favor? Well, the president told us. Listen. He was on a committee and he was so responsive and so good. And I said, he's a nice guy. I should wait a minute. Wait a minute. That was the favor. Because people have been asking, well, what is the favor that he did the president? He was on a committee with you. He was on a committee. It was a condominium committee many years ago. And he was a very big supporter of mine on that committee. I did a great job. Trump World Tower. It's a, a very tall building right opposite the United Nations. And when you build a building, people always get together at the end and they make a settlement with the owner. They say the ceiling wasn't painted the right color or something, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff. Sometimes serious stuff, but in my case, it was a great building. And he was on the committee. I thought he was a great guy. I thought he was really a nice guy. He was very supportive. You know, I'll say this. When you've actually gotten to know somebody and they're not asking you for something or that you're not in a position where you feel like they inherently have an interest in making you think one thing or another you often get a better sense of who you're dealing with and you feel like you want to bring people into your professional life that you know from just life in general. I mean, I feel this way in media. The people that I've, well, certainly people I've worked with in the past, it's a little different. People I've worked with in the past are, if I've had a good experience, the first people that I want to work with in the future. And I also think that loyalty is... A, a very important trait to have. It's also a very important trait to uh, to respect. You know, it's a very important trait that we should want other people to have as well. And, and to do that means that you have to reward people for loyalty. So, look, the president is not a politician. I mean, I don't think that he, well, he wasn't a politician before he's president, obviously, but I don't think that he thought of the people that he was bringing in as possible liabilities. I also think that there was so little prep in many ways for the possibility that he was really going to be the next president of the United States and leader of the free world, that there was a lot of learning on the job about who to give certain jobs to. And I think that's been quite clearly the case. But I I go back and forth on this one because I, I am frustrated. I'm frustrated the president has given so much authority and so much trust while he's the occupant of the White House to just utter bozos, third tier people when it comes to their ethics and their intellects. Honestly, there's a lot of them that are really low grade individuals and they've been given incredibly powerful positions. So that's been a disappointment. And and there are disappointments about this presidency. You know, we're going to have to start to face up to some of the things that aren't what we wanted, aren't what was promised. Um, it's not to say that I don't still support the president. It's not to say I'm not still just forever grateful that Hillary Clinton is not the president. I, I get it. But, you know, on this one, on his choice of advisors, and I'm not bitter that he hasn't given me the chief of staff job. Okay, don't. No, no, I'm not. I'm not bitter. You know, 
I mean, would I be an amazing White House chief of staff? Of course, of course. But has the president asked me yet? No, no, he has not. But seriously, I, I do think that the president gets a bit of leeway as well, or should get leeway for wanting to have people around that he feels at some level he can really trust because he is encircled with enemies all the time. I mean, he he is besieged in a way that no president in my lifetime has ever been. He cannot talk to or trust most members of the press. He cannot talk to or trust, uh, talk openly at least, honestly, to many senior government officials, uh, people who are career government servants. He has to be wary of them. And I think the president would be foolish not to be. But, yeah, we were told that it's because Cohen, you know, a long time ago, did him uh, a solid when he was on a condo board, and that's how it all happened. You know, it's, you know, the, the what is it, the power of weak associations? Sometimes you just bump into somebody, and that person changes your life for better or for worse. Like with Cohen, it's for worse. So we'll continue to follow this, and got a big hour three coming up. I bumped into some protesters last night. Yes, that's right. I would, they, they tend to find me, or I don't know, we just... I have a, a sixth sense about these things, but I found one of these one of these anti White House administration official mobile protests going on last night, and I interviewed the protest leader, asked him about immigration, asked him about what the heck are you doing here? Are you harassing people? Uh, you'll want to hear that conversation, and uh, that's up right in just a few minutes. Man, I practically slipped into a food coma yesterday after I finished off. Some delicious pork chops, courtesy of Omaha Steaks. And right now, Omaha Steaks is giving an amazing limited-time offer to my listeners. When you go to omahasteaks.com and enter code BUCK into the search bar, you'll get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. Originally $195, now only $49.99. Order now, and you'll get four hand-cut, aged to tenderness top sirloin steaks, two savory premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha Steaks burgers, Four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, potatoes au gratin, apple tartlets, plus four more burgers free. I'm telling you, it's an incredible package. I have it myself. I've almost gotten through my first one. I might have to get a second one. That's right. This limited time gift package is only $49.99. When you go to omahasteaks.com, make sure you type buck in the search bar and add the family gift package to your cart. Don't wait. This offer is going to end soon. Go to omahasteaks.com, type buck in the search bar to send the Omaha Steaks family gift package today. So last night, I'm walking home, and sure enough, I stumble upon a protest going on in the streets of D.C. It's a, a funky assortment of folks. They are dancing. There's a lot of loud music. About 30 or 40 protesters and a few dozen police following them around as they block the streets and generally just make a lot of noise. So I figured, hey, I'm kind of a media person, a, a, a journo, a, a, an opinion journalist, if you will. Maybe I'll stop and ask these folks, what the heck are you doing here? And this is how that went. My name is Faraz Nasser, and I'm the founding organizer of Work for Peace. Okay, what's Work for Peace? Work for Peace is a queer and trans grassroots movement that uses all forms of dance to promote peace. We were founded in response to the Pulse nightclub shooting to bring the dance floor into the streets to assert that we are here and we will dance. And we're best known for our dance protests in front of Mike Pence's house and Ivanka Trump's house. 
Um, so you might have and, seen And so seen why are you here right now in this location? So right here is the apartment complex where Stephen Miller lives. Stephen Miller... Well, would you look at that? I stumbled onto one of these protest at the home groups, right? These are the people or among the people who find out where a prominent person that they disagree with politically lives and they gather outside their home and try to make a lot of noise at night when they think the person is likely to be there. You'll recall this happened and was rather aggressive and terrifying outside of Tucker Carlson's home not long ago. It's happened in other places. My understanding is this isn't even the first time they've done this to White House senior advisor, senior aide, whatever his title is, Stephen Miller. Uh, They've done this before, although I've never seen them doing it like this. Now, is this group intimidating? No. There were police everywhere. This was a group that was honestly dancing in the streets. That was their whole thing. They're dancing in the streets, but they're playing very loud music and they're harassing somebody. Uh, So I wanted to ask a little more about why they choose these tactics. Remember, I'm speaking to the organizer of this group. I wanted to ask them why they choose these tactics and what they think about the the issues overall. So uh, strap in, folks. It gets uh, interesting. The architect of family separation and the architect of using tear gas on migrant families, women and children who are at the border with the with the migrant caravan. So we're here to send a clear message to Stephen Miller that his immigration policies that he is pioneering are not tolerated by our communities. Why follow him to his house, though? Why not just protest outside the White House where you'd have higher visibility? But some people might think this is harassment. Well, we were at the White House, and then we came to uh, to his his apartment complex. And when we think about harassment, what comes first to mind for me is ICE individuals breaking into migrant and refugee households and tearing them from their families and putting them in jail. What comes to mind is Roxana, a trans Latinx individual who was kept in ICE, dehydrated and beaten by ICE officials for 10 days before she was killed. Should we abolish ICE? Oh, just to be clear here, I asked this protest leader about whether it's harassment to gather outside the private home of somebody who works in the White House and the U.S government. uh, And the response I get is not really about whether it's harassment of that person. It's real harassment is what ICE does to people at the border. I mean, I would just know that this is when people talk about whataboutism, this is a first class A1 choice USDA example of whataboutism. Uh, It has nothing to do with anything that I'm really talking about here. I'm saying you are leading a protest outside of a person's home where they are operating in their capacities as a private citizen, like I'd like to have dinner and go to sleep like a normal person, and you're making a lot of noise and you're trying to embarrass them in front of the people who live around them. And your answer to that is, well, there are bad things that happen at the border. By the way, to say that Stephen Miller is the architect of tear gassing migrants at the border, that's false. As we know, the Obama administration used tear gas at the border. In fact, tear gas is a often used uh, often used technique of law enforcement for crowd control and crowd dispersal. So th- this is has that has nothing to do with Stephen Miller at the border and the notion of or the the policy of child separation at the border that was occurring under the Obama administration, not in the same numbers as it has under the under the uh, Trump administration. 
but also you did not have a flood of people trying to abuse our system and come across the border by the tens of thousands. Uh, but then we get into a little more of uh, what this guy thinks about policy. Get ready for it. We're here to advocate, to abolish ICE, to let them in, and to send a clear message to migrants and refugees in the caravan that we are here, we support you, and we will continue to work until you are free and you are safe and secure. And do you think that we should have open borders? Uh, yes, I do. I believe that when we think about the reason why borders are in place, when we think about U.S. imperialism and how it has desecrated other countries, many of these countries from where individuals are coming seeking refuge because of U.S. imperialism, the U.S. needs to open their borders. It needs to. We need to find a safe and secure way to support the individuals whom we have marginalized as the U.S. population. All right, a lot of big takeaways here. This is an interesting conversation with this guy. Now, I, I yes, he's a liberal loon. I will say he was he was very polite. He let me stop. I said I, I work for the Hill. I'd like to ask him some questions, and and he he was perfectly polite to me. And everybody there was kind of smiling and laughing. So you know, I I, I always come to you from a place of honesty, right? If I saw a bunch of menacing thug like, uh, you know jerks assembled outside. I mean, these were like nice, happy, smiley, silly jerks. Uh, they were not menacing. They were not in any way trying to intimidate anybody. I mean, they were they were actually dancing in the streets with rainbow flags and rainbow colored clothing on. So, and I, I don't think anybody was scared, but I also think that it was causing a bit of a disturbance. Anyway, here's a guy who has, as far as I understand it, gathered many times. And this is one of the things that he does. He's an activist. He's a left-wing activist and primarily on the issue of immigration. I notice how when I ask him about open borders, he doesn't miss a beat. Yes, absolutely, we want open borders. When I ask him about whether ICE should be abolished, he doesn't miss a beat. Absolutely, we should abolish ICE. Now, these are positions that are increasingly common and widespread within the modern Democrat Party. You know, these are not really fringe positions anymore. I'm not saying they're majority positions, but they're not fringe. You can find plenty of Democrats for whom this is the case. And I found most interesting that this guy immediately, when I asked him about open borders, he said, yes, we should have open borders. You've heard me tell you this before, that the left believes that we owe it to the world, that we owe to the rest of the world bring them into our country, changing our culture to accommodate them, changing our laws to accommodate them, and giving them our stuff via the welfare state because of all the injustice that the United States has done around the world over the many, many decades, all the, all the wrongs that we have committed. You see, it's to make up for colonialism even though America was never a colonial power, but to make up for the legacy of Western imperialism, the mantle of which was taken from Great Britain and by the United States after the Second World War. So that's the mentality that's at the heart of a lot of this left-wing activist thinking. And you're hearing a left-wing activist just say it, right? He's just coming out and saying it. Yeah, that's right. We have to take in all these migrants. Anyone wants to come to America should be able to come to America because we owe it to them because of all the bad things we've done. This is very similar to the Obama point of view about how we have to make amends with the rest of the world and we should uh, 
limit the way that we use our power and our influence because of all the bad stuff America's done. Do you think that the Democratic Party is in line with your thinking on this? Do you think you'll have a candidate in 2020 that will be pro-open borders? Should they just be honest about this? We're here to push the Democratic Party to continue fighting for justice and to con continue fighting for safety and security for migrants and refugees. Do you have any concerns that following people to their homes to protest at night when they're not at their places of work is shutting down discussion, could be seen as intimidation? could be actually hurting your cause? We're here to celebrate the queer and trans community. We're here to celebrate migrants and refugees. Now, put aside the silliness of a lot of what this guy says and his inability to answer some pretty straightforward questions, he is in line with the Democrat base. He is in line with how they think about these things. This is where the Democrat Party is going. Open borders, abolish ICE. We owe it to the rest of the world. Who cares what happens to America? So in that sense, this protest was useful because I got to see how crazy they are. Well, the weather outside may be frightful, but the smell indoors is delightful if you are drinking some delicious black rifle coffee, my friends. This is your cup of joe if you love America, freedom, and all the good stuff about this country. And you support veterans in the process, by the way. I'm all about Black Rifle Coffee. You should be too. Get yourself the gift of delicious coffee delivered to your front door or get it as a gift for a friend of yours. Black Rifle Coffee makes it easy with their coffee club, okay? This is the best tasting, most energizing coffee you can get. And they offer three, six, and 12 month prepaid and pay as he goes subscriptions. And you can gift them for somebody. So you want a cool, interesting gift for the holiday to give to somebody that. You know, they're going to love, and it's easy for you to set up, Black Rifle Coffee. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck, and you'll receive 15% off your order. Sign somebody else up for the coffee club or sign yourself up. Again, blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off, blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. We do not live in charitable times when it comes to public discourse. I think we could all agree on that. We do not see a lot of people acting with uh, mercy and forgiveness in the way that they approach others in public life. And it's, it's particularly uh, pointed these days in the era of get Trump at all costs. Uh, there you had a couple of hosts on The View who were really having a good laugh at the expense of Michael Cohen and saying he's a thug just like his boss, of course, Donald Trump, and that you know, karma is a B word and you, you, you heard it and they weren't the only ones. There was a lot of jubilation yesterday on social media from people that were just having a good laugh at the fact that Michael Cohen's going to prison. Now, it goes without saying that Michael Cohen is a individual who is ethically challenged, uh, somebody who clearly was well beyond his skill set when it came to where he was in terms of uh, access and influence, uh, somebody who is not a, a model for any of us to follow, and he is paying a, a pretty hefty price, literally in the sense that he's getting a big fine and also that he will lose three years of his life and his reputation is destroyed and ruined. But I try to always be mindful of the fact that, you know, these political disputes that we have, when we turn it into a matter of cheering for one side or the other to have people sent to prison, we really debase ourselves in the process. Um, I, I try very hard not to do this. I'm reminded of a story that was told to me 
many years ago by, I wouldn't even call him a friend. He was an associate of mine in New York. And he was not a nice guy. Uh, he was not somebody that I wanted to spend much time with or around, but he was one of those friend of a friend guys that would just end up hanging around. And and he, this is when we were, uh, I suppose, a few years out of college, and he was in law school, and he told me about how he had spent some time down at the at the uh, federal courthouse in New York City. And I forget even the specific context of what it was that he was saying and, and how it was that this, but essentially said that he was down there for uh, the defense of a guy who was on trial for insider trading, stock market fraud, that, that kind of thing. And he said that showing up to this trial, he thought the whole time, because everyone's wearing a suit and you're in a courtroom and there's a certain normalcy that seeps in when you're in that courtroom. You know, this is just what people are doing. And it's it's easy to forget the stakes. You know, everyone goes home at the end of the proceeding and it just seems like it's a process. It's a process. But I remember he told me that at the end of that process, there was a guilty verdict and this guy ended up, or, or maybe even he took the plea. I mean, it doesn't matter. He was it was clear at the end of the process that the defendant was going to prison for some period of time. And this friend of mine told me about how he heard, and he will never forget it, or this associate of mine, that he heard the wife just start sobbing. Sobbing at the recognition that she was going to be separated from her husband for a few years. Sobbing at the recognition that her family name would never be quite the same, that somebody that she had uh, partnered up with for life and had children with, there were, there were kids in this family too, uh, that they had suffered this fate. And, you know, it's not a trial where people at the end feel like, yeah, that's right, justice is done. This person is a terrible person. People get into desperate circumstances and they cheat on their taxes. People get into desperate circumstances and they uh, engage in insider trading or some kind of a white collar crime, you name it. And I do think that we need to separate in our minds those who have truly victimized individuals, uh, people who are violent criminals, people who have stolen from individuals, and those who have scammed the system. It's not to say that scamming the system is okay, but it's different. And we know this, we, we intuitively know this, that a mass murderer is very different from an insurance fraud scamster, right? These are very different. You could sit down, and I'm, I'm reminded of a Christopher Hitchens once said that he had a test for people who had a prior record, you know, that you could sit down with somebody and if they said, yeah, you know, I spent some time in, uh, spent some time in the slammer because embezzled some money from my, my company, he says, all right, well, you paid your dues and sure enough, you, you've come out and I hope you've reformed your ways, but you'd continue having lunch if you sat down with somebody like that. If you sat down and you found out that somebody was engaged in you know, child sex trafficking or was a, a rapist or a murderer, you probably wouldn't continue the lunch and would want to get the heck out of there. Um, that's the obvious way of separating out the, the degree and and severity of crimes. We all know there's a degree in severity. And I, I think that there's way too much celebration in our current moment from the Democrats and, and a lot of 
anti-Trump Republicans, of people who are having their lives ruined. I mean, their life savings wiped out for process crimes, for crimes that are not the kind of thing that make anyone a bad person. They just make a make a mistake. You know, no one's dying of a drug overdose. No one's losing their life or their future because, you know, Michael Cohen didn't didn't pay all of his taxes to the state of New York or something. That, that's just not happening. And that's not to say that he's a good guy and he shouldn't pay a price. But I do think that those who celebrate this, who take a position of glee at the suffering of others, should be very troubled by their conduct. And there's way too much of that right now with anyone associated with Trump. I mean, people are celebrating what happened to Michael Cohen that happened in front of his wife and in front of his kids. Uh, that happened in front of people who have known him and, and yeah, even love the guy. I mean, I don't know him, but you know he has people who count on him and love him, and, and he's not going to prison for three years, which is not an insignificant amount of time. General Flynn, do you ever think that after 30 years of serving his country, of being part of special operations in Iraq, Afghanistan, at the top of the Defense Intelligence Agency, do you think that he would be begging a court not to send him to prison? And for what exactly? What's the crime that Flynn supposedly committed? Misremembering a phone call that wasn't criminal in the first place? And for that, you could have your reputation and your life ruined? I just ask that we all be a little contemplative about this and that we remember that those who run around celebrating at the misfortune of Trump associates are, if nothing else, completely abandoning anything resembling a holiday spirit. Uh, you know, this is a time of the year as we get into Christmas and we get into the new year where you think about mercy and forgiveness. And this is a country that is in need of a restoration of those ideas right now. There is far too much desire to see the other, to see your opponents destroyed when really we should be thinking about how we can all be better and do better for each other. So Merry Christmas and goodwill to all, but not from the view, apparently. She's back with her first public statement since the effort to destroy Brett Kavanaugh with an avalanche of lies. Doctor or professor of psychology, Ph.D., uh, Christine Blasey Ford, is now presenting awards for Sports Illustrated. Listen. I am honored to speak with you from afar about a woman I admire so much a woman who suffered abuse as a vulnerable teenage athlete who found the courage to talk publicly to stop the abuse of others. Her courage inspired other survivors to end their silence, and we all know the result. Rachel Den Hollander, I am in awe of you, and I will always be inspired by you. In stepping forward, you took a huge risk and you galvanized future generations to come forward, even when the odds are seemingly stacked against them. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this year's Sports Illustrated Inspiration of the Year, Rachel Den Hollander. Now, this situation does not surprise me at all. In fact, I was arguing with people last summer that this is exactly where we would be. There are a number of important takeaways here. First of all, you will recall that it was a widely used talking point during the effort to destroy Brett Kavanaugh 
that this woman has nothing to gain. That's what they kept saying. Nothing to gain from coming forward. And people like me on this show and elsewhere were saying, really? Because Anita Hill had nothing to gain other than being considered a hero for women's rights and and womanhood for all eternity, for getting uh, speaking gigs and book deals and having movies made about what a hero she is. I'd say that's a lot to gain. And it was just obvious as soon as Christine Blasey Ford came forward with this that she was also going to benefit from the massive system in place that's there specifically to prop up and reward those who do the bidding of the left. And now that she's presenting awards for Sports Illustrated, as well as being considered for, uh, she was considered, I believe, for Time Magazine Person of the Year. She definitely is on Time Magazine's cover for the month of December. So she's on the cover of magazines. She is lionized. She is treated like a, a hero, a truth teller, when... There is still, and this is where I get to the other component of this, no evidence to back up anything that she said. In fact, what we know from the career sex crimes prosecutor who interviewed her in Congress, there would not have even been enough based on what she had to share, based on the information that Christine Blasey Ford gave, to to effect an arrest of Brett Kavanaugh today, never mind taking it to this level of, well, we, we have to believe her. This woman has a right to be believed. I would also note, does the woman who's accusing Keith Ellison have a right to be believed? No, of course not. Keith Ellison is a Democrat, and he's an African-American, and he's in a different category for the left than other guys who get accused. Uh, what about Michael Avenatti himself? Does his accuser of felony domestic abuse have a right to be believed? No, the right to be believed line only gets trotted out when it benefits Democrats. And I would note that none of this with Christine Blasey Ford now is surprising. You see, what they've done is they've created, they're creating this this image, this brand around her as a survivor. And we're supposed to treat her as a survivor when I think that she was highly politically motivated to make the allegations that she did. There's no evidence to support the allegation that she brought forward. There are a lot of inconsistencies and massive holes in her story, but she's going to attach herself now to real survivors like Den Hollander, people who were sexually abused, who were raped, who were assaulted, because in doing so, she is the spokesperson for those who are survivors. And if you call into question her authenticity in that role, the left will, of course, say, are, are you downplaying the people that she's speaking for? You know, She is attaching herself to this movement and putting herself at the forefront of this movement. And what you are seeing now is just the beginning of that effort. There's going to be a lot more. Christine Blasey Ford is now a left-wing celebrity. And this was entirely predictable. In fact, I predicted it. I know many of you knew the same thing, that she would be, for decades to come, your kids will be watching movies, however, whatever channel they watch them on. Your kids in, in 10 or 15 years will be watching a movie where Christine Blasey Ford is played by the most you know, beautiful actress of our era, and she's a a heroine for all time, standing up against the evil, you know, rapist frat boy Brett Kavanaugh and all the white male privilege. He said, that's what's going to happen. And it was obvious, and we called it, 
And I would just note that the people who were saying that wasn't going to happen, I think we should be at a point now where we can say, we don't have to listen to their opinions on these matters. They're obviously not very good analysts. Nothing to gain, they said of Blasey Ford. That was a lie. And it was an obvious lie. But at the time, it was useful because it managed to take some of the ferocity out of the argument that this was all a setup, that this was all a hit, and that Christine Blasey Ford is either a delusional damaged person or just a vicious liar. There's only one of two options, and she's one of them. But they're treating her like she's a hero now, of course. The show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for Roll Call. Roll Call is the best call, because there ain't no call like the Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And let's uh, get right to it. Eric says, Buck, I found this very interesting. A body language take on the wall discussion between uh, Trump, Pelosi, Pence, and Schumer. On a side note, to chime in on your best voice, clearly some people don't listen to the Stansberry Investor Hour because clearly Ariana Huffington is your best impression. LOL, shields high. Darling, thank you so much for the kind words about Ariana. She wants you to make sure that you stretch, that you get all of your macros, and you eat vegan and do yoga because this is all the great CEOs of the 21st century are very limber. It's important to be limber. Ariana has a lot of good advice for you. Um, Steve writes, Hey, Buck, outstanding show as usual. Well, Steve, outstanding message as usual. Just catching up on Wednesday's podcast, I love the guests today, Andy McCarthy, Louis Gohmert. A thought just occurred to me. Is it possible for the president to direct the Army Corps of Engineer, uh, Engineers to inspect and document the entire southern border wall? Just seems like that would be a great start with notations of weak spots along the border. As always, love the show. Shields way high. Well, Steve, it would be a good idea, I think, to have the Army Corps of Engineers check out the border. Uh, I'd also we'd have to keep in mind that much of the border doesn't have any wall or any fencing. So, you know, we got to be, we got to be clear on that one, right? There's most of the border is not in fact uh, covered by a fence or wall of any kind. And as to how quickly it could happen, keep in mind that there are some areas of the border where it's very hard to cross regardless. Uh, There are some places where there's already a natural barrier or you're just going through a lot of desert and they have in place, you know, sensors and border patrol and some ways of trying to catch you. Um, but there are other areas that are most highly trafficked. So you would start with the most highly trafficked areas of the border, and then you would make your way from that to the lesser trafficked areas of the border. Uh, I mean, Representative Jim Jordan, for example, shared the following facts via Twitter yesterday. Walls work. These facts don't lie. Israel. Illegal immigration down 99%. San Diego sector of our border down 92%. El Paso down 95%. Tucson down 90%. Yuma down 95%. Let's build the border security wall. I have yet to hear a a serious counter argument to this. I've yet to hear people say anything in terms of an argument other than just walls don't work. Walls don't work. Well, you can chant it and you can yell it libs. But that does not make it true. 
So there you have it. Um, Adaramola, Adaramola? Yeah, Adaramola writes, Hi, how is you? Well, Adaramola, I think you're a bot or a computer program from a foreign country that is trying to engage me in a Facebook discussion. So I will just write back to you, I is fine, and please take me to your leader because you're a bot because you're not actually somebody, I think, who listens to the show. Uh, that is my guess. Uh, I've had plenty plenty of bots, unfortunately, get into the Facebook, but it's sometimes kind of funny because in real time I read them and I go, oh, that, that's a bot. James writes, uh, he's sent me a link, so that's not a good one. Andrea writes, for your mom, I show this to every class I teach. It's Swan Lake, but within a uh, acrobatic twist. And it's Great Chinese State Circus Swan Lake. Uh, Andrea, I will send that to my mom. You apparently listen to the show very, very closely. Because, yes, my, my mom was a professional ballet, not belly. Some of you heard me say belly ballet dancer with American Ballet Theater, one of the premier, if not the premier, ballet companies in the country. Uh, that was some time ago, and since then she's just been the greatest mom in the country, but I will certainly send this link on over to her. Uh, let's see here. Um, Rachel writes, Buck, with everything you talked about with Andy McCarthy tonight pertaining to Flynn, it just seems like they were trying to entrap him. I'm no lawyer and may not know the parameters of entrapment. Can you explain why this is not an issue? No, Rachel, I, I think you're right. In fact, uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial, uh, the Flynn entrapment, pretty much says it. Uh, they, they were trying to get this guy. They were not doing this in good faith to have a discussion. Uh, look, th there, are, there are two pretexts that they used to try and get to, to excuse sending over what was essentially a criminal probe to speak to the incoming national security advisor and make sure that it seemed like it was no big deal so he wouldn't have a lawyer there. One is the Logan Act, which is preposterous. The, you're going to charge a, an incoming national security advisor with a, a law that has never in the history of the United States sent anyone to prison. I think one time a charge was brought under the Logan Act and the person was found not guilty and it was in the 19th century, okay? This is ridiculous. And the fact that people in the government would even bring it up just goes to show you they're desperate to find some excuse for this. And the other one is this notion of a, a counterintelligence threat or a blackmail threat to Flynn, essentially that the Russians could have said, well, you must uh, tell us everything you know about all the secrets because otherwise we will tell the American people that you told them something not true about an unimportant conversation with Kizilyak. Uh Guess what? Nobody would care. Flynn could just say, whatever, I'll tell people I misremembered. It wasn't an important conversation. You know, if, if uh, let me put it to you this way. If the incoming national security advisor, if General Flynn had a conversation with the Russians in which he said, uh, I, I had, I had cornflakes for breakfast yesterday. And in fact, he had cocoa puffs, you know, technically that's not true. Nobody would care though. So the Russians don't have something on him. There's no criminal act. Him speaking to them about foreign policy policy was not criminal. Okay. The whole idea and Sally Yates, who I think escapes way 
way more easily from the blame here than, than she should in terms of the public recognition of her role in this. She was one of these people who's pushing this. Look, she's a little Democrat, a little hall monitor Democrat statist who didn't like Trump, didn't like his people, and had devoted her whole life to being a little DOJ bureaucrat and, you know, wanted to uh, find a way to get these guys. And she did. And she remember, she's the one who also wouldn't, wouldn't execute the order uh, that Trump gave when she was acting attorney general. I mean, the fact that that woman was acting attorney general should be jaw-dropping to people. Look at these individuals at the top of the DOJ, top of FBI. Look at this. Comey, McCabe, Yates, Strzok. These people are acting terribly, terribly when it comes to their abuse of power and the use of their discretion. And These are the most important people at the DOJ and the FBI. These aren't just random people that we trotted out from nowhere. They were the ones running these investigations. They were the ones making these decisions. They're terrible. They really betrayed the public trust and they're partisans. And because they're not honest about that fact, they're also liars. And what they're doing is dishonest and they're destroying people. I I have no respect, none, for Yates, for Comey, for Strzok, for McCabe. These people have profaned the institution's that they supposedly represented and worked for. Diane writes, Buck, thanks for enlightening all of us in the hut. Are the Pelosi and Schumer homes surrounded by fences or, more importantly, walls? If so, why? I literally don't see either of them capable of delivering policy beyond do as I say and not as I do. Shields high. Diane, uh, yeah, walls obviously work. And this idea that walls don't work is just preposterous. And, I mean, it's really... It's embarrassing that that people even say this. It's so stupid, but it's just one of these. It's like saying we're a nation of immigrants. No, we're not. Most of us were born here. We're not a nation of immigrants. This is just not true. I mean, and if you're going to say, well, over the course of our history, well, then all nations are nations of immigrants. People come and go. There are migrations. I mean, it's just a stupid thing that people say or that immigrants do the jobs Americans won't do. Well, Americans would do any job, if the pay was right, pretty much, any legal, you know, decent job that where the pay was right. But if you bring in low-wage, low-skill workers to undercut what you're going to pay Americans, and by the way, pay them off the books, then yeah, they won't do those jobs. Uh, as to the walls, I mean, this is, it's just stupid. It's just not a smart, it's not an intelligent position that the left holds on this. But, you know, they managed to get away with it. And, you know, they're, they're a slippery bunch on the left. So we got to hold them to account. Eric, I am not OSS, but became impressed with you on Real News on the Blaze TV and have been following you since those days. Whoa, thanks, Eric. I think I figured out some aspects of the Facebook algorithm. The more people interact with posts on a Facebook page, the more people will see it. So if people see a post and feel the message is important, they need to like and post and add comments. This more people, uh, The more people do this, the more eyeballs will see it. Shields high. Well, Eric, I can tell you that you are correct and that uh, interactions with a Facebook post are a very important component of that Facebook post having reach uh, and, and you know, shares, comments, likes. So for those of you who see things that I post and, and also when you talk to each other on posts on Facebook, that helps us get the message out. And if you're listening to this show and you have not already, please do follow our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. It's a way to communicate with all of you. You can send me messages. I post there as often as I can. And it's a, kind of a central gathering point for many members of Team Buck. Uh, That is going to be how we close it out today. Excited for a little Freestyle Friday tomorrow. 
Until then, you have your orders. Shields high. S-N-I-double-P-Y, my friends, snippy.com. This is the new social media site you've heard me talking about here on the show. I just was posting yesterday. I'm going to post later today, too. Snippy.com is a place where you can have unfettered, unrestricted conversation and don't have to worry about anti-conservative bias. Thousands of my listeners have joined Snippy.com. They're expressing their opinions and stirring up lively conversations. You know, if you looked at Snippy.com a few months ago, you need to go back and check it out again because they've done all kinds of awesome updates. And if you care about politics, sports, current events, food, fashion, really anything, you're going to find a lively chat on Snippy.com. No shadow banning, no suppression of conservative thought ever. And they've got an updated user interface and exciting new features, too. It's available in the Apple App Store and for Android. S-N-I-P-P-Y dot com. Free to join, folks. This is a free product I'm telling you about here. Just go check it out. Snippy.com. S-N-I-P-P-Y.